when I heard Jesse give that recitation of scripture um, at a wedding a couple weeks back, I said, oh, you've got to do that here at home. Not only the fact that he can speak real well and he's got it memorized and that's neat, but the truth of those that scriptures and the promise given in the Old Testament that is fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're looking at, at right now. Now, if you are God, and I got news for you, you ain't, but if you were, and you had the ability to be omniscient, meaning all-knowing, omnipotent, meaning all-powerful, you're all-good, you're almighty, you're holy, What's the first thing on your priority list? When you, when you, you know, you look at your do list, what's number one for God? No, yes. <laughs> you know, it's so funny. Uh, this is not an African-American church, so people don't normally talk back. That's, that, when I asked that question, both services, somebody said something. So, uh, <laughs> like I said, the Super Bowl, making sure Indianapolis wins. But, uh, y- yeah. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> We have a divided house here somewhere, huh? If you're God, what's your priority number one? And priority number one, I'm going to show you in just a minute, and we'll look at a passage today from the Gospel of John that will make this real clear, I believe. God's priority number one is to promote himself. God's priority number one is that he does all things for his glory or for his fame. You see... There's, there's something about God that the, the most important thing he does in all of his attributes where he wants to show off himself. Listen to these passages from the Old Testament. Isaiah 48, when dealing with a, a wayward group, a wayward group of, of uh, people, his, his people Israel, as he's speaking to them, he says this. He says, for my own namesake, I delay my wrath. In other words, there's going to come a time where I'm going to punish you for this, but you know what? It's going to come on my timetable when my namesake, when my name can be made the best. For the sake of my praise, I hold it back from you so as to not cut you off. See, I have refined you, though not as silver. I uh, I have tested you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake. When God says something twice, it's usually trying to make a point. For my own sake, I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? He can't. Number one, do this thing. Make myself famed. I don't know if that's a word or not, but that's what his his job is. I will not yield my glory to another. God, the most jealous thing God is, is for the promotion of his glory. That he will be seen as awesome. Isaiah 42, again, speaking to this same group of people. He says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. See the former things have taken place and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. And then he says, and and then it goes on to say, sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the ends of the earth, you who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you islands and all who live in them. Let the desert and its towns raise their voices. Let the settlements where Kedar lives rejoice. Let the people of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the mountaintops. Let them give glory to the Lord and proclaim his praise in the islands. 
So here you've got this God, and he is saying, I will do things, and I will do things for my glory. Not only that, but I have created a people who I am commanding them to delight in me and to praise me. Whoa. Really? This seems a little weird. I mean, it's kind of like if you had a, had a friend, and this friend woke up in the morning and looked at themselves in the mirror and said, hey, I look pretty good. I look real good. And all day long, they're looking at you saying, hey, don't you think I look pretty good? You should say, you need to say, I look pretty good. Because I do look pretty good. Constantly. That's annoying. Right? That is annoying. <laughs> if you had someone like that, a friend like that, how would you, how would you deal with it? So you think, well, you know what, I'm just not going to give glory to God. I'm going to live my life in such a way that it won't give glory to God. I'm going to completely go the other way, and you know what? You can't do that. It's impossible. God says, and being who He is, He's the one who gets glory in everything. So if you choose not to give Him glory, it doesn't, it doesn't diminish His glory. Listen to this quote by uh, C.S. Lewis, he says, A man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship him than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling darkness on the walls of his cell. In other words, just because you don't choose to live that way, you don't, you don't stop, the, stop the sun, you don't stop God being glorified. God will be glorified. It's his number one agenda. We're going to find a passage today, and if you want to open up your Bible to John chapter 11, we're continuing on with our three-week deal. This is the last of our three-week deal at looking at the death of Lazarus, and today we're going to find out that he doesn't stay dead. He actually gets resurrected from the dead. We've been looking at this for three weeks. And, and this is the central question here is how does God being glorified and that not being seen as a selfish act work out in the Gospel of John in, in, in chapter 11? For instance, what I mean by that is this. You can do something for selfish reasons that works to others' benefit, right? But you can do things that are solely for yourself that is only selfish. And that's what the problem is here. If God wants everything for himself, to be, wants people to give him praise, wants his name to be famed, how does that work with us? How does that fit in with us? And that's what I think John chapter 11 is going to deal with. So, but uh, if you're new to us or if you just were kind of snoozing the last couple weeks, I need to kind of just give you a quick update or a quick, uh, just kind of catch you up. And who's back down? Is that Rebecca? Rebecca, we're going to fly through this. So I'm, I'm not going to read all these. I'm just going to kind of go quick. So here we go. Uh, chapter 11, I'm just going to kind of go through the first 37 verses quick, and then we're going to pick it up today in verse 38. There's a guy named Lazarus. He's sick. He's a guy that Jesus knows well. Jesus knows both Mary and Martha, his sisters, and they send word to Jesus, and you can see it there in verse 3. It says, they sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. So they send messengers to Jesus. Lazarus is sick. We're going to find out that it's actually a sickness that would lead to death, and in fact, it does and Jesus says to the messengers, he, he says in verse 4, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory and, or excuse me, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. All right, so Jesus is saying this, this thing is going to work out in such a way that I am going to get glorified through it. Then it goes on to say that Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. 
And then this word that I've dealt with every week, but the word yet in verse 6 is a poor translation. It should really be so. In every other major translation, it is the word so. The NIV trying to make this, this flow better in English uses the word yet. And it's very unfortunate. They let their, their, they let their uh, uh, presuppositions into the passage determine how they translate a, a word that means therefore. The word should be therefore, but therefore would be a little bit weird to put there. But the word so would fit nice, and every other translation does. NIV, I went over this two weeks ago. Uh, you can listen to that if you want to hear why that is. But it really should be, Jesus loved them so he didn't do anything about it. That's the tension that John wants you to feel at this point when you're reading this account. He loves them deeply, so he doesn't do anything. In fact, he stays two days. Then he says, let's go. His disciples say, whoa, whoa, whoa. verse 8, whoa, uh, Jesus, do you remember what happened last time we were in Jerusalem? There were flying projectiles. These people were picking up stones. This was not a good place to be. And you want to go back there? Jesus says, you know what, if you do things in the, if you do things in the, in the daytime, you walk in the day, and now is going to be daytime, we'll be safe. It'll be a fine time to go. They don't really understand that, so Jesus, uh, if you go all the way down to verse 14, he tells them plainly, listen, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe. They decide to go. They get there. They get to the city. They're still outside of where the, where the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus would be. They arrive there, and Jesus finds out that, that uh, Lazarus has been dead for four days. Now, we went over this last week, why the significance of four days. But the, ba- uh, the major significance is he's dead. He's not, remember from Princess Bride, mostly dead. <laughs> he's dead. Dead, dead. No more, no more life possibility here. Dead. Four days, dead. This town of Bethany is, is only about a couple miles from Jerusalem. And so a lot of people from Jerusalem, a lot of Jewish people from Jerusalem, came over to Bethany to mourn with Mary and Martha and the passing of their brother. Okay, so that's, that's what's going on. All these people, it's kind of chaotic. Remember, they hired professional mourners in that culture. People would weep and wail, and they would be professional at it. And they had flute players, and it just, it was a zoo. Jesus comes on this scene, and first of all, he's going to comfort both these women. First of all, he's going to comfort Martha. And you look at verse 20, and it says that, that um, Martha, when she heard that he was coming, went out to see him. Mary stayed at home. doesn't say why, but she did. When, first thing out of her mouth, when she gets there, is, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's the exact same words, the first words that's going to come out of Mary's mouth. Where were you? We sent word for you. Why don't you show up? But then Martha adds this a little bit. She says, but I know not even now, God will do whatever you ask. Jesus tells her back, you know what, your brother, your brother will rise. And, and she thinks he's speaking more globally, like, at the end. So she says, well, I know he'll raise in the resurrection of the dead. And then Jesus says some of the most comforting words in all the New Testament. And matter of fact, if, if you go to a funeral, it's a very good chance you will hear these words. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. 
He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Isn't that amazing? He says, you will, if you believe in this, even though you die, you won't die. So picture the scene now. There's all this crying going on. Martha's run out there and the first thing she tells him, she kind of tells him off. Where were you? If you wouldn't have been here, you wouldn't have died. You wouldn't have died. Jesus flips it around and now is asking her point blank, do you trust me? I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will never die even though he dies. Do you, and then she just looks him, he looks her straight in the eye and says, do you believe this? This is a Hollywood thing. It'd be a moment of tension. You need to see that. Am I going to trust this guy? I asked him to do something. He let me down. But she answers, she says, yes. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who was to come into the world. Now, maybe Martha and Jesus had more conversation. That's all it's recorded for us. From there on, she runs back to tell Mary. Verse uh, 28, 29. Mary hears about that. She runs back. Or Mary now, or excuse me. Martha tells Mary, Jesus wants to see you. Mary then goes out to see Jesus. When she, and she runs out. And unfortunately, there's supposed to be a private conversation because she runs out, all these other people come running afterwards, this whole crowd. So picture the scene. Mary is extremely up, uh, upset. There's this crowd of professional mourners and people who want to come to and flute players and whatever coming to. So it's this whole thing going on. And that's when they meet. And Mary comes to Jesus. And this time it says he, she fell at his feet and she says, same thing Martha said. Lord, if you'd have been here, you could just see this time through sobs. So she has, she's at his feet. Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. The comfort given to Mary is simply this. Not a word. She didn't get a word. But she gets to see something that I don't think Martha saw, and that's not what Martha needed. Jesus knew what Martha needed. It says, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved or, or so, so mournfully agitated that he was, and it says he was troubled or trembling, some of your versions will say. He was that upset. He, it, the, the, literally, it's like snorting like a horse. That's where this phrase comes from. And it means he's that filled with indignation and, and he's so upset. He says, where have you laid him? Come and see, Lord, they replied. And then it says, Jesus wept. So that's the, that's the picture. When they're on the way to go to the tomb, it says, the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them indict Jesus and agree with the assessment of Martha and Mary in the beginning and say, could not he open the eyes of a blind guy? If he could come and say, hey, blind guy, you don't, you don't have any eyeballs at work, but boom, you can see. If he could do that, if he could do the blind guy thing, you don't think he could do the, the sickness thing? Why didn't he come? Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? What's the situation? You've got all this weeping going on. You've got Jesus. You've got a, a sorrowful Savior there. And you've got some people, a few people who are blaming Jesus. That's the scene. Let's delve into, let's delve into uh, this week's stuff. First, I want to hop back to verse 34 real quick, but then we'll dive right into verse 38. 34 says this. Jesus asks, where have you laid him, he asks. Come, and we'll show you. 
Now, sometimes you just got to scratch your head, right? You got to scratch your head. Why did Jesus ask this question? Wrong answer, because he didn't know. Right? It's like in the Garden of Eden, when God says, Adam, where are you? God knows where Adam is. How do I know that Jesus knows us? Well, Jesus, Jesus knows that. He's God. He knows everything. And so, also, he, except for some things, he had to limit himself for being human. He couldn't be everywhere at once. But he, had a, he knew things. How do I know that? It's the passage says that he knew before anybody told him that Lazarus was dead. Lazarus is dead. So, why does he ask this? Interesting thing. And, they, and, and then they say, oh, we'll, we'll show you. So he's involving them in this whole process. Look at verse 38. Jesus, once more, deeply moved. There's that phrase again, deeply moved. This agitation. He comes to the tomb. So he's at the tomb and he's this, there's this intensity. John describes the caves, or the, the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. So here you got this. There's a, there's a stone, we don't know what size, a relatively decent size, I assume, because you don't want people going in there and messing with people who are dead. I don't know why anybody really want to, but you don't want that, so you put a stone over that. And it's a cave. At that time of uh, history, caves were of two different kinds. You had the cave that was down. You know, it's just like if you ever go splunking, and I've done it in Indiana where you just kind of go in a hole, and then you're in the cave. But it goes down for a while, and then it goes all around. It could be that. It could be, you know, like a like a normal rock kind of thing, and, and it goes this way, and you got your, your cave going in like a normal cave. Could be either way. If you go to Israel, you can find out which one it was. You can actually go to the tomb of Lazarus, all six of them, and, um, <laughs> and you can find out which one. Actually, some of them are down, and some are that way, and no one really knows. You know, in God's economy, it's probably none of those is the actual tomb where Lazarus was, was laid. I've heard about people, I've never been to Israel, but people have been there and say you can go and see three or four spots where Jesus was born. You can see four spots where Mary uh, was originally had her birth or different things. And so it's not quite Wisconsin Dells here, but uh, it's gotten, gotten a little bad. Anyway, I'm not sure which way it was, but there's, a, there's an obstacle to what Jesus wants to do here. Jesus wants to see Lazarus. At least, at least that's what they think, that he wants to view the body. And there's a stone there. Now, Jesus being like a superhero, right? You just think, I'm going to do something really cool here. First thing, move the stone, right? Because there's a, John makes a big deal about there's this stone, there's this thing in the way. And what does he do about it? Look at how he ingeniously handles this. There was a cave, there was a stone. Look at verse 38. He tells him, take away the stone. They take away the stone. Now you gotta ask it, it's, why is it there? These people are totally involved. Jesus doesn't move the stone, they move the stone. I mean, why else would you record this? So it's a weird fact. You know, if I were writing this fact, I don't know why I would include that there was a rock there and they moved the rock. There's something about these people being involved in this whole thing. He invites them into a certain element of what he's gonna do. And part of it is removing this stone. He asks them to take away the stone. Actually, he doesn't ask. He tells them, take away the stone. The reply back is, oh, Lord, uh, said Martha, the sister of the dead man. By the way, uh, he becomes the dead man now. He was Lazarus. 
I don't know. <laughs> just an interesting thing. We'll see that again. This phrase, like he lost his name when he died or something. You're the dead guy. You know, labeled the dead guy. Martha uh, says to Jesus, the sister of the dead man, ooh, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Now, I don't know how many of you have been around dead things. I was in Indiana in 1985. Spent a summer in Indianapolis. For whatever reason, uh, that particular summer, it, it cooled down to around 90 degrees. It would up be 105 plus. And this is, it's just Indiana, so it's not a coast or anything, but whatever reason, a very hot summer and very humid all summer. My job that summer, I worked for a destruction company. Greatest job in the world, man. I was great. I went into houses, me and a bunch of guys, one of these houses, and we would, um, uh, there were houses that had a fire. Some had just little fires, other ones pretty big fires. And we would try to, to gut the house as much as possible. I, I swam a sledgehammer all summer long. I had huge pipes. I am, <laughs> I mean, there it is. I, seriously, I should show you a picture. I'm just cut, I mean, oof. Um, And, I, and that's what I did all summer. I just ripped apart these houses. One of the houses we went into was a house where the, the fire had been so bad, I don't know if you've ever been in a house that's been burned out, that the floor had completely went to the basement. You know, everything's woof. And so you have to kind of walk around the edges or we'd thrown up some temporary, uh, just two by fours to walk on and that kind of a deal. And so our job was to clean all that all, all the dirt, cut all the joists out, cut all the drywall or plaster or whatever it is out, get all the insulation out, see if we could get it just to the, the outside of the house and, and salvage it. That was our job. So we're, I'm working upstairs and all this kind of thing. All of a sudden, I hear this sound from the basement. These guys are down there. Another group of guys are down there cleaning all the stuff that had fallen. And I hear, I am not kidding you, this <laughs> of about four guys. What had happened was one guy thought it would be fun to open up a refrigerator that had been upside down for six months. I have never in my life I, I kid you not, this smell I could taste. It was like a wall, a blue wall. There were four guys down there gagging. Instant. He, the dude who opened it, in, I think he just hewed right there. Instantly. So I wonder what's in here. Wah! What, what was this guy? I mean, what were you thinking was going to be in there? I, I just it drives me nuts. So for the rest of that entire project, that house reeked. It was unbelievable. All right. I don't know the seriousness of stank that happens when a person dies for four days in a tomb. They didn't embalm. There was no embalming. But there'd be a certain layer of odor when, when you'd open this up. So Martha's just saying, hey, 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 tell you what. Lord, I know you want to view him and everything. Let me just tell you about him. It's like he was when he was alive, except he's laying flat and ain't moving. Let me just save you the effort here. He, it's stinky. I think the King James even says that. If you have a King James in front of you. Really, I'm serious. I think it says, by now there's a stink. <laughs> That's what she means, man. Oh, baby. Listen to Jesus' answer. It's a great answer. He says, did I not tell you 
that if you believed, you would see the glory of God. Whoa. That's pretty cool. It might just be worth the stink to see the glory of God. But you got to believe here. In the midst of this sorrow and everything else, guess what's going to happen? Something amazing is going to happen. They don't know what, though. They still think he just wants to look at the body. So they took away the stone. Now, Jesus has just told them that if you believe at this moment, you're going to see the glory of God like you've never seen it before. You're going to see something in the middle of your sorrow that is going to go, it's going to change everything and you're going to be dancing in just a few seconds. The basic problem that we have in life, the basic problem that human beings have is that we have not enjoyed the glory of God. Kind of a Romans freak. A few weeks back, I led a group of people, or myself and Norm led a group of people through the book, of, first half of the book of Romans. And I want to let you see a few passages in the book of Romans that talk about this very fact. What does it mean that, that we don't enjoy the glory of God? We don't, we, don't want to, we don't want to make God's name famous. There's something within us that wants to make us famous. We want to be made much of. And the reality is God says, no, I want you to make much of me. There seems to be a tension there. Is there a tension there? I need to be made much of? And God says, no, 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 make much of me. Romans 1, verse 21, for although they knew about God, they, these people, and the they is kind of a generic person, could be you and I. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and, well, here it is, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. And here it is. They exchange. There's this exchange going on. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. Truth for a lie. And worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who has forever praised. Amen. You understand? That's the basic problem we have. Basic problem we have is we've taken God, the one that we're supposed to give glory to, and we've exchanged it for something else. Because you have to worship something. You're designed that way. You don't have a choice. You're going to worship something. Everybody's religious. You're going to worship something. What are you going to worship? God says, is it going to be me, or are you going to exchange it for something else? What the Bible calls sin, basically, is exchanging it for something else. All the time. That's what sin is. You just take God of his great place and you put it somewhere else. There's something within us that wants to make us in that spot. Or make uh, whatever it is, a, a, a situation we think will make us happier or more satisfied. If we just, if we just had gotten married, or if we just had, had the right job, or, or if we just had more money, or if we just lived somewhere where it wasn't 40 degrees below zero, or whatever... If I just had that stuff, then I'd be happy. Then I'd be fulfilled. And I'm going to switch that for you, God. There's something within us that doesn't want to give God fame. There's something within us that doesn't go, this is so cool that today in the USA Today, or yesterday, I can't remember which one, there's a full-page ad 
talking about Dungy and Lovey Smith's faith in Jesus Christ. Give glory to God. There it is. There's something within us that says, I wish I had a full-page ad. Man, if I could just have a full-page ad, USA Today, score. God gets a full-page ad, man. That's cool. That is cool. Something within us that just doesn't like that. We exchange it. Paul says this is the very, de- very definition of sin. In Romans chapter 3, he says, There is no difference, for all have sinned. And what happens? You fall short of the glory of God. You fall short of what God, He in His glory, wants you to enjoy Him, and you fall short of that. Now, that's the bad news. Jesus Christ with Lazarus is going to reveal the good news. The good news of the gospel, the good news of the gospel is not important until you understand the bad news of the gospel. The bad news of the gospel is we all fall short of the glory of God. The good news of the gospel is this, from Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith and have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That very thing that we exchanged before is exchanged back. The message of the cross, what Jesus Christ did at the cross, was to unexchange back for us what we exchanged. We exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Jesus Christ comes and says, I will pay the penalty for that sin and reverse the trend so that once again, like, like uh, Jesse read, now they can know me and follow me and rejoice in me and delight in me. The reality is you wanting to receive satisfaction and love and peace and comfort and joy in life is not in conflict with God wanting to receive glory. When we get that through our thick skulls, when I get that through my thick skull, your life will change. When you realize that God's highest priority is to glorify himself and that is not in conflict with him showing love and mercy to me. Everything changes. The Bible opens up. Passages like, Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, so he waits, makes sense. Because God is not doing things ever that don't glorify him. God is also not doing things that will ever show him to be unloving, ever. Those two are not mutually exclusive. Listen to this quote, and I, I apologize. This baby's long. I mean, this is a long, <laughs> this is a long quote. So um, just hang with me now. I know it's the mother of all quotes here. This is my my buddy Clive Staples Lewis. Um, I really wish I had met this guy. He uh, he loved to smoke a cigar too, and I I uh, I, I, I I have <laughs> I've been around people that like to smoke them too. So. Um, Listen to this. This is, this is awesome. He's writing about the Psalms. This is, comes from a book called Reflections on the Psalms. And C.S. Lewis's problem when he was writing this, before C.S. Lewis could become a Christian, what he said was, is I cannot worship a God who goes around like an old woman saying, look at me, look at me, look at me, praise me, praise me. It drove him crazy. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says after he starts thinking about this more. He says, But the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. 
I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise, unless, sometimes even if, shyness or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought in to check it. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, (laughs) not here, Uh, (laughs) wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historic personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time most balanced and capricious minds praised most, while the cranks, misfits, and malcontents praised least. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmists, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us, as regards the supremely valuable, what we delight to do, what indeed we can't help doing, about everything else we value. If you just went to the Bahamas during the whole thing, catch this sentence. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy, because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. Let me give you an example. Anybody a Bears fan here? Let's pray for you right now. No. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Rebecca back there. Woo-hoo-hoo. <clears throat> if you're a Bears fan, uh, that's a step up from being a Packers fan, I will say. Security. We need security. Uh, Bears fan, uh, and and hypothetically speaking, let's say they score some points today. So when they do that, and if the score is not like you know forty to three, say it's you know the first points, there's something within you, if you're a huge Bears fan, that when you're watching the television, you will not say. Okay, statistically, the points are 3 to 0 now. No. You'll go, Yahoo! Yes! Or whatever you normally do. That's the Trichler household. We, we just enjoy athletics. And so um, there's something within you that finishes it and praises it and enjoys it, and it makes the, the exercise done. When I, when I look at my wife and say, well... I'm really glad that on 17 of the 43 different things that make us compatible, we work really well. On the other 23, uh, you know, we're mostly compatible, and a few we're not. No, she doesn't want to hear that. She wants to hear is, baby, you're hot. I, 
my wife wants to be delighted in. She wants to be adored. She wants to be, I call her the delight of my eyes. And I don't do that for like, okay, now it's your turn. Tell me I'm the, no. There's something within me. There's something within me that just says, that was awesome to build her up. I feel great about that. You were designed of God to glory in the glory of God. You were designed of God to so give him praise that you get maximum joy at that and he gets maximum glory. It's, it's amazing. God is a genius. I'm not, I'm not understating this. It is maximum when he says it's appointed consummation when those two meet. Let's look at how this fills out in the life of, of Lazarus. Because Jesus promised that this whole situation was not going to be wasted. No, this will not result in death. Well, he died. But not the kind of death Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is saying, something's going to happen. And what's the reason for it? In the very beginning, verse 4, he tells his disciples, and you have to assume he's told Martha and Mary, no, what will happen here is God will be glorified. The Son of God will receive glory. That's what's going to happen. And it's going to make all this worth it. What? The sickness, the pain, his death, and your mourning. All of it's going to be worth it. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, he's at the tomb now, and he says, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Why does Jesus say this? He, he utters this prayer to God. The prayer is that, God the Father, would you raise Lazarus? He doesn't say that. He says, I'm glad you heard me. What is he, heard what? Well, I think to be right there, and at that moment, to be able to glorify himself. At that moment, Jesus is fourth in 99, okay? This guy is dead in the tomb for four days. Jesus is going to throw the ultimate of all Hail Marys, and it's thrown up so high that he's going to run down and catch it himself. This is awesome, what is going to happen. And he says this so that you know that he's connected to the Father. He wants you to fully enjoy this. Verse 43, when he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! I heard a great, I read a great thing on this. I think it was Charles Spurgeon who said, the reason that he says Lazarus, you know, he could have just said, come out. But if he'd have said that, all the graves would have opened and they would have said, yes! No, 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 no. Just one dead guy, one dead guy. Lazarus, you're the only one, come on. Everybody else, just wait your turn here. We'll get to you later. Um, he raises Lazarus. Verse 44, the dead man, there he is, the dead man, came out. His hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Picture this now. They're expecting the big stink. They open it up. I don't know if the big stink's there or not, but, but for sure we know he says, Lazarus, come out. He comes out. He's still in his grave clothes. I don't know what grave clothes are. I don't think you want to wear them normally because it's wrapped around his feet, a cloth around his face, and he's walking out. Now, if you're watching this, you got it at least stunned, you're stunned. Or you're just leaping for joy, right? So much so that Jesus has to say, you know, could you guys take off, could you guys just take off his uh, grave clothes and, and let him go? And again, Jesus doesn't go, foofy, lets him be involved in this whole thing. Take off the grave clothes and let him go. What was complete sorrow complete, you know, Jesus is weeping, everybody's weeping, professional mourners has turned into at least 
stunned silence and probably crescendoed all the way to a ruckus roar. They have seen the glory of God. And it's satisfied them. If you were to ask them if it was worth it, without a doubt, they got to see something awesome. If you'd ask the blind man who was born blind whether it was worth it to go all through all those years about being born blind and then being healed, they said, without a doubt, it'd be worth it. Now, the thing about Lazarus, which is interesting, he doesn't say a word. Well, I mean, he maybe says something, but we don't, it's never recorded. It's not about Lazarus. I mean, I think it'd be great staging if Jesus were to take this Lazarus guy with him on the road, you know? And now we're going to hear from the guy that I raised from the dead just to make you, you know, a little more impressed. Why don't you say a few words? I was dead, but I'm not anymore. Thank you, Lazarus. And <laughs> Lazarus goes through quite an experience here, right? It's quite an experience. But you know what? He dies again. This is not the resurrection of the dead like we will go through. He dies. I'd like to be the only dude in history that has two death certificates. And I'd be like, oh, jeez. Was it worth it? It was totally worth it. Now, remember I said that often in the, every other time in the Gospel of John, Jesus does some miracle and then teaches about it. This one, he does the teaching first and then he does the miracle. What's he trying to teach us? First thing I think he's trying to teach us is this is all for the glory of God. It's all for the glory of God. Therefore, if that's true, suffering is never wasted. What's the story of Lazarus? It's about the glory of God being revealed. What's the subpoint? Suffering is never wasted. If you're in a position right now where you feel like you're in the tomb four days, it's not being wasted. God is never late. Seldom early, but never late. He wasn't four days late. He waited to make it this thing. And he might be doing that in your life too. He might be waiting to make it forth and longer. It also shows us the sovereignty of God. God is completely sovereign over all things. He allows things. He causes things to happen. And he is the one who's going to enter back into it. When he comes to, when he comes to um, comfort both Martha and Mary, he enters into their pain. And he teaches something. He teaches that I'm the resurrection and the life. A major teaching which he proves to be true when he raises Lazarus from the dead. And to Mary, he gives to her the fact that when you're in the middle of all this, when you're in the middle of all this suffering, you need to know something. I am weeping with you. Listen, Jesus didn't need to do that. Jesus could have marched into town, went right to the tomb, moved the, to- moved the stone, zoop, got him. That, he had much more he was trying to accomplish than just raising Lazarus. Close by asking you a question. And this is a question that I'm wrestling with after preaching this this morning, so I'm wrestling with this too. The question is, do you glory in the glory of God? On your, on your life's list, is it number one? Number one, do it today, when I wake up this morning, am I going to glory in the glory of God? Is putting Jesus Christ first in my life, no matter what takes place today, is that the number one thing? Or have other things crept in? Let's close in prayer. Lord, I love this passage. I love the fact that you included it. I love the the fact 
that you did all this for your glory. God, I love the fact that you demand praise from us and yet you've made that praise light our hearts on fire. Father, in this room I know, just because I go through the cards and I know there's a significant amount of pain. God, I know that there's, that there's a uh, significant amount of people who feel like they're in the tomb four days. So Jesus, I ask that right now you let them know that you will be calling forth Lazarus. Come. You will be calling. It may not be now. But Lord God, we ask that it would be now. Why not? It would be great. Lord, there may be people in this room who are at a point in their spiritual journey where, where they're just wondering whether or not you really are the resurrection and the life. They're really wondering if you really did come as a sin bearer as the one who take our punishment so that we don't have to. They're just right at that point. And right now, Lord God, if today be the day where they would bend their knee to you, just like Martha was faced with that question, do you believe? And Lord, today they would say, yes. Yes. Today's the day. I'm going to put my trust in Christ alone. I'm going to settle this matter once and for all. I'm going to trust Jesus Christ. Lord, that's the exact same message for everyone else in this room. Are we glorying in the glory of God? Are we making it our number one priority? Are we letting you be you and just letting you drive circumstances where you drive them? God, and I just confess that it's a struggle for me. It always is to make you the number one priority. And so I ask for that for our people too. God, that they would make you number one. We ask this in Christ's name.